Take a network break. Get your dose of virtual donuts and settle in for 30 minutes of tech news analysis and commentary. Today we're sponsored by Path Solutions. Ever had a user complain about a problem yet your network monitoring system says everything's fine? That means your monitoring system doesn't look deep or broad enough to know what's really going on. You want to know what's missing? We'll tell you more at the break. And stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're talking about key differentiators of Palo Alto's Prisma SD-WAN, including ML for day two operations, cloud blades, and more. And finally, check out our newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Every Thursday, we round up the best tech blogs and IT stories, plus commentary from the Packet Pushers. It's free to sign up. We don't share your email with anyone. You can sign up and read all the back issues at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And we're not just jumping on the trend. We've actually been uh, publishing that newsletter for six years before it was cool to have a newsletter. Right. We're not doing it on Substack, but yeah, we're cool. We got a newsletter. <laughs> Although, <laughs> obviously, we're not cool if we're not paying somebody to do it. Anyway. <laughs> we do pay actually quite a bit of money. Yeah. Uh, This week also a bit light on news, but also light because I had a tough week. Uh, I got vaccinated and had a mild reaction to the the vaccine. I'm very pleased to have the vaccine and the reaction is normal, but I was down for a day uh, while they're happening. So if I've missed anything this week, you should absolutely contact us at packetpushes.net slash FU and that would be helpful. Congrats on getting the vaccine. How is the 5G reception inside your skull now? Uh, Well, see, I don't see 5G as... The uh, as the cause of COVID, I see it as the anti-Illuminati tools. So remember that for every Illuminati, there must be a body fighting back. There must be someone who's <laughs> on the other side. Illuminati. <laughs> you can't have one. You can't have a war without two sides. And I believe that five G is there from the shadowy organization fighting back against the Illuminati. <laughs> I love it. A counter narrative. A counter narrative is emerging on 5G. That's right. Uh, you know, if I was writing this science dystopian science fiction no- novel, this is the point where the people come out of the shadows and go, aha, yes, the 5G network was our tool to prevent the Illuminati from dominating the world. That's why they haven't taken over. Right? There you go. <laughs> Makes <laughs> it all fit. Right? <laughs> Makes it. it all fit. Perfect. Yes. Perfect narrative. Perfect narrative. Got to be. Got to be true if it's okay. that good, right? Absolutely. I mean, if it makes sense, why not be true? That's exactly right. Yeah, five G's out there, slowing down the progress of COVID, but not in the way that you expect. It's keeping everybody at home, keeping them safe. Ah, see, there you go. All right, let's do some news before this turns into a Q drop. <laughs> All right, let's get to some news. Uh, Cisco has announced three new ASICs in its Silicon One product line, including the G100 ASIC. It's promising twenty-five point six terabits per second of throughput. Cisco says the G100 can be used to build out a 64-port, 400-gig-e spine and leaf switch, and the G100 is also programmable using P4. So this is good news. It's been a couple of years since Silicon One branding was announced, and they released just a couple of chips in that product line that were going to be dedicated to the high-end routers. Do you remember that launch? Yep. It was probably a couple, was it, a couple of years ago. It was wasn't a couple of years ago, yeah. And um, they sort of said at the time, no, no, we're only releasing chips, and we're only going to, you know, they're only going to be for our bestest routers, the bestest and the biggest you know, and it was going to be chassis-based switches and service provider core. And of course, I knew that that was kind of like a fallacy. It was always going to be that they would produce a line of uh, silicon because once you've got an ASIC laid out, you can then build a product line. Uh, but I hadn't expected silicon to get this far down the product release. They now have, um, I think, 20 ASICs in the model range. Classically Cisco, they couldn't have like six. They have to have 20. I think it's 10. Yeah, they're all over the place. G100, Q200. There's quite a few in the product line. And then there's sub versions like Q201L and Q211L. Anyway, I guess if you want to find out more about the ASIC details, head on over to the blog post linked in the show notes, which is on the Cisco website. And they've also updated the product Silicon One product family documentation to explain all of the differences. 
And the key thing here is that the Silicon One chipsets are now the same silicon is going to be used for fixed box or fixed form factor uh, type architectures, can also be used in line cards. And the Q200L silicon is uh, specifically built for the backplanes inside of chassis uh, or disaggregated build-outs. And then, of course, you have the fabric cards where you just have the, the core switching engine. So they'll be the, the L-series switches. Uh, ASICs are the ones that are going to be doing the core switching. And then at the edge, you've got the QXXX, which is going to be your edge switching where you do all of the handling and the cross and the buffering. So I think this is great to see Cisco converging. It's very clear from the language that they're converging down on this single ASIC. Instead of doing what they used to do, which was you know a different sort of thing, every different business unit would have a different ASIC mm-hmm. family. It looks mm-hmm. like Cisco's really converging down here. Yeah, I think so. It's also interesting to see that they've uh, gone out and embraced P4 uh, when Barefoot came out with its Tofino chip that was programmable from the start. Well, that sort of gave them a little competitive edge. And we saw folks like Inovium and others start rolling out chips. And both of them, Barefoot and Novium, I think, hit that 25 terabit per second throughput before Cisco. But Cisco now can roll up and say, we've got the same thing. We support P4. So mm-hmm. if you're a telco looking to do some packet processing, we can help you out with that. Yeah, I do have a problem with the you know industry's first 25 point terabit per second programmable and fully shared packet buffered device in seven nanometers. There's probably a first somewhere inside of that syntax, but definitely not the first to 25.6. Anovium's been there for a couple of years, right? certainly way back. Uh, Tofino hasn't gone past their 12, but uh, Intel, you know, the, the, the 25.6 uh, version of the Tofino chip has been taped out and Intel, I believe Intel will bring that to market in the near future. And then, of course, Broadcom has 25.6 terabit per second silicon. So that, of course, gives you, you know, the 800 gig, 400 gig density that you want for switching and routing in the new era, especially if you're into 5G where you want to start provisioning your 5G edge with maybe you want to do 100 gig today, but be ready for 400 and 800 gig in the near future. Mm -hmm. It's also, I think the notable aspect here too, is that they're pitching the S1. There's a version of the silicon, which is specifically for web scale companies. So they talk about it being optimized in some way for what the web scalers want. And I guess that means less features, less complexity, because mostly what they're looking for is very low latency, high forwarding performance. They're not looking for the mungeability that you tend to get in the enterprise, like the infinite feature set. And if you could strip it back, would that be better? I think that, you know, and the suggestion was from the blog post that they're targeting, you know, Azure, Google, and the cloud providers with this particular uh, switch so that people can then run their preferred operating system on the top, which is a turnaround for Cisco, I think. It is also, I think, a tough market for Cisco to get into. I don't know, based on the volumes they can crank out of this chip, if they're going to be able to compete with Broadcom as just sort of a big, fast, dumb web scale switch like Broadcom could turn out. Well, they have to get to critical mass. The trick with ASICs, as it's been explained to me by various people in the industry, is that you have to sell a lot of these silicon mm-hmm. to make them viable to make. Yeah. And once you've put the money into taping it out and getting the production run working, you really, the only way you're going to recover costs and reach profitability is if you sell as many of them as possible. Right. Of course, the other way is to sell them for the maximum amount of money possible. Right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But this is fundamentally a volume game where the bigger your production run, the more money you make. Right. Overall, that's simpler. That's where it boils down to at the end of the day. And I think Cisco is going to have a challenge here to, you know, it has several competitors, of course, Broadcom, NVIDIA is now in this space after its acquisitions of Mellanox and Cumulus. Uh, we've seen Marvell revitalize its networking silicon. Intel, of course, bought uh, Barefoot. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. I think Cisco is going to find it much more uphill. Um, 
than it used to be. So of course it's got still dominant in the market. It owns 50 to 60% of market share, not as much as it once was. And certainly, you know, it's it's losing its position, its preeminence, and it's not automatically a consideration for an increasing number of companies. A number of companies are now saying we need to reconsider our position and decide whether Cisco is the right partner more and more. Um, so it's going to be a tough sell. I agree. Yeah, I think that I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, because we've seen Arista sort of run into the teeth of web scale. Like, you know, one quarter can make you or break you, uh, depending on how much volume they get. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's almost like a handful of purchase orders from a couple of com- companies like Microsoft can set your share price back, the, you know, 5, 10, right. 20%. Exactly. Uh, which is not what you want when you're listed on the stock exchange. That's not how the, the system works. I do think, though, this is also a sign. We have a, a thesis here, and I keep pushing this thesis that Cisco is converging its enterprise strategy onto a single thread. So in the past, Cisco was an organization that had um, the business hypothesis on which they operated was that there was many different business units and all the business units would compete with each other. So the Catalyst would compete with the Nexus, would Mm -hmm. compete with the data center and the campus, and there'd be two or three divisions in each category and they'd all be competing. And the business hypothesis there was that if you could get a dominant position in the market, then your problem was that your organization would then go stale and right. then die, yep. right? Because yep. if you dominate, you you stop innovating. And so there was a common corporate strategy in the early 90s that was largely invented by Jack Welch of GE. And the idea was that you keep your company healthy by competing against yourself. So you either buy or build multiple business units, compete for the same business. And if one business unit fails, the other one's there to pick up the revenue. Mm-hmm. So the market opportunity is not lost. It was also an era of branding. So Cisco did a lot of work to sell its brand in the same way that Coca-Cola and Nike, people buy those products for the brand, not particularly for the product as such. Right. I remember seeing Cisco commercials on like regular consumer television. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And that was kind of an era. And Jack Welch of GE. So we we know how GE turned out. That model didn't survive the transition to the modern era. And Cisco has been progressively realigning itself. So we've seen, you know, the campus model is now aligning behind a single um, strategy. There's no longer this diverse multi, you know, multiple business unit. There's one. And in Silicon One, well, actually looks like it's going to reach the campus as well. So you'll have one ASIC family across all of Cisco's switches and routers with the same API. So they're talking about the same way of programming it, which seems to be based around P4, mm-hmm. based on the documentation. And that could lead to customers getting a better experience because if they don't have to keep reinventing ASICs and software and abstractions between programming the ASICs and every operating system is different, they start to move towards one consistent operating, one development platform, just with minor tweaks for each part of the market that the silicon and the hardware is going to, then perhaps Cisco can you know, stop the customer loss and and stabilize the market in a position where it wants to be. Yeah, I'm pleased to see Cisco being ambitious with Silicon. It's a tough market to be in, but they are really embracing it. Um, I'm curious to see if the web scale business doesn't work out, if they sort of go back to that old model of better together, where Cisco hardware and software is supposed to be more tightly integrated and better performance. I haven't heard that message in a while. Maybe we'll get back to that. Well, I think the flip side here is that people don't care so much about ASICs yet. There was a hope, you know, we had the hope back when, when, you know, that you would want to know what ASIC was inside your switches. Right. And the vendors have aggressively said, you don't need to know. We're not telling you. Broadcom doesn't make a big deal about, you know, promoting its brand and its model range like Intel did with its Celeron and Pentium, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's very interesting. There's a lot of different dynamics. I think maybe the networking industry is what it is and people just 
don't want to know. They just count the ports on the front by and large, except for a few customers who care. Um, I do think Cisco's well behind here though. Like they're very late to the 25.6 market. 25.6, it's, it's, a, it's a very serious achievement to reach 25 point terabits per second and to you know extend the range to an eight terabit, a 6.4 terabit, a 3.2 terabit um, divide, you know, ASICs for all the different footprints that they need to reach. Mm-hmm. The question now is, how long is it going to take Cisco to bring those silicon into its products right. and get them in front of customers and actually make their software train stability? People continue to sort of talk strongly to us about how poor the stability and capability of the Cisco iOS product family is compared to competitors. I would like to think that Cisco can turn that around with this silicon by converging on a single way of, of doing it. All right, moving on, AWS recently announced the availability of four new metadata fields in their Amazon VPC flow logs. The goal is to help engineers get a better view of AWS services that workloads are interacting with and do things like identify ingress and egress flows and other visibility improvements. Yeah, so this is the idea that uh, public clouds have access to more data than you do in your private cloud. So the flow record is pretty well understood. People export flow records and you then bring them into an analytics engine and start to look for signal in the noise of those flow records. What AWS is saying here is you can actually just, you know, choose some metadata out of the AWS. There's certain type, it's pretty limited. You read the announcements if you want more. They're talking here about flow direction, traffic paths, packet source, AWS service, and packet destination. So obviously saying this packet was going to this AWS service, this packet was going to this, uh, coming from it, right? Right. Which is fine, except that it's proprietary. That's not something that we do elsewhere. So if you want to take advantage of it, you now have to do something in your analytics system that would be useful. So useful of itself and useful in the sense that AWS is adding metadata to its flow records might drive the industry to actually change because NetFlow is notoriously static. But I'm not sure in context how useful this is because actually most people are multi-cloud. They're not into AWS proprietary features. Well, I will say the value proposition has jumped out to me is in the AWS announcement. They're saying it's to help get a better understanding of application dependencies. And we know that these cloud services can get very complex in terms of understanding which services are connecting to which other services. So that helps. And then monitoring data transfer and data processing charges. We also know cloud uh, pricing and the money you're spending can be opaque. So more visibility there can also be helpful. But yeah, I take your point that you're, this is proprietary to AWS. Uh, and so you may want to think about having more of a third-party option that can spread across all of your public cloud instances. You know, whatever your analytics engine is, which is collecting these flow records, now needs to have it. And if you're using the same analytics source to analyze data from a on-prem cloud or from somebody else's cloud, now you've got missing data or you've got data you can't use, right? One of the two. So right. could be a feature, could be a bug. Yeah. Uh, one other thing to note, whatever else you might think about this feature or AWS in general, I've got to tip my hat to the folks who are writing their documentation. I think it's some of the best in the industry. It's clear, concise. There's no marketing BS, not even in the announcements. So thank you for that, AWS and all you other vendors. Take a page from them. <laughs> yeah, say what you've got to say. Don't say anything else. Exactly. Don't tell me that it's an industry first or... <laughs> So many times somebody feels like they need to add some high school grade adjectives to it. I don't need to know that it's enabling my digital transformation for better, blah, blah, blah. No, none of that. Just, yep. Save our time. Just give me the facts. All right. Sticking with cloud, packet broker specialist Gigamon have announced Hawk. This is a visibility and analytics fabric for public and hybrid clouds. And the goal is to capture cloud traffic for analysis and send captured traffic to third-party devices for security analysis, performance monitoring, and so on. 
This is the flip side of Flow Records. The challenge with Flow Records, of course, is that while they can give you a general sense of what's happening and you can use them to look for patterns in the flow data, what you can't do is forensic-grade analysis. You really need to capture the packets and store them. And forensic-grade analysis is ultimately where you need to be given what's happening with security these days. You need to be able to replay and to be able to prove that it's not your fault. Or that it is your fault, and then you can, but you can take it to a court of law and say, <laughs> you know, this is the evidence and so forth. Um, so I think visibility fabrics as a whole is a market that is underserved, and any features which advance that is is probably good. However, I don't necessarily see what Gigamon is doing here, Drew. And you took the briefing, so you know more about this than me. But I feel that this is like catching up. This idea that you're going to do traffic mirroring in the cloud was something that I think. Uh, Gigamon's competitors, so take for example, Big Switch, did a year or two ago. Yeah, there was also a startup we talked about called Nubeva that was doing it. And I think they then pivoted to TLS decryption and intercept. But yeah, and also most of the native public clouds can essentially do the mirroring for you. But what Gigamon's saying they can do is you you know run an acquisition node in a in the cloud in the guest OS, and then you can send that off to whatever you need to do to do your packet processing or split it out to whatever security or performance monitoring tools you're using. Yeah, I think that the the key here is that you can do simple packet capture, usually with a feature that exists in the cloud, unless you can't, right? There's some clouds that don't, I feel. Although this is such a moving space that it's always hard to know when you don't, (laughs) what you don't know. Um, But the challenge here is that what a lot of people do is when they receive a packet, they look for it and pattern match it and say, that's traffic that I need to capture. So if you say, I put a tap here, I'm only interested in a certain type of traffic so you don't overload your capture engines. And, right. and keep in mind that you do actually have to pay for everything in the cloud and network traffic in particular is uh, generously priced. Uh, yeah. So you might have a <laughs> And one thing to that, I think Gigamon uh, is talking about how they've changed their pricing model uh, so that it's based on consumption rather than the number of nodes you're spinning up in the cloud. And it might, I don't know how it's going to work out price-wise, but at least it's a, it should be clear in terms of how much you're going to pay for this based on how much traffic you're sending through it. Yeah, the consumption pricing is one thing. I, you know, I've, I think for every win you get on consumption pricing, there's a potential loss. Um, so, you know, if they've updated their pricing model to meet what some people think they want, that's okay. But as always, you know, uh, the challenge here is good that Gigamon's able to do this. They're laser focused on this visibility fabric idea. And they have a lot of features in there that people like. Yeah, I think if you've already bought into the whole Gigamon visibility fabric, you've got all the hardware, you've set up all your policies. Now you can also bring that cloud data and do the analysis either in the cloud or on your premises, whatever you're most comfortable with that's available now. Yeah, feels like a feature so that you don't stop buying Gigamon. doesn't feel like a feature that... It, it doesn't feel it. groundbreaking, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's something I think that customers are like, we're in the cloud, we need it, and Gigamon said, all right, we'll make it. Yep. All right, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Path Solutions. If you knew everything your network equipment knew, do you think you could run a better network? Path Solutions built TotalView to make it easy to root cause troubleshoot network problems that other monitoring systems aren't even aware of. TotalView automatically monitors all devices and interface in your entire infrastructure. Your management and users hold you to be responsible for the entire network, shouldn't you have the visibility to match? It goes deep. It can collect performance, configuration, 19 different error counters, QoS, and other statistics to give it a depth of understanding. And this information is then sent through a heuristics engine to produce plain English answers of what's broken. And this means your time is spent improving network operations because you know everything that your network equipment knows. Core offering includes all the features needed to run a healthy network. That's NetFlow, path mapping, diagram, IPAM, network config, automation, server monitoring, and more. 
Path Solution slogan is don't turtle your network. So schedule a technical overview meeting. And if you mention Packet Pushers, they'll get you a turtle plushie. Head over to pathsolutions.com. Learn more about how to get total network visibility on your network today. That's pathsolutions.com. All right, back to the news. The French cloud provider OVH suffered a massive fire at its Strasbourg facility last week. It destroyed one data center, severely damaged a second, and took two others offline. Now the register is reporting that an uninterruptible power supply might be the culprit. Hmm. Uh, first of all, a uh, big shout out to all the people working from OVH Cloud who are probably putting in a lot of unpaid overtime. Yes. <laughs> so uh, just a reminder to be nice to them. They're probably doing their best and they're not getting paid extra to make your problems go away. They're probably, you know, the company's taken a massive hit. I imagine financially it's not in a position to give out bonuses to all its employees. So be nice to the employees at the very least or give them the benefit of the doubt where and when you can. One of the things I liked about this is that obviously, you know, losing an entire availability zone during the fire is bad, but actually losing four availability zones in a single area is probably a problem. Like it should not have happened that the fire mm-hmm. in one availability zone should have taken out the others. And there's something, there is reason to criticize OVH for not doing enough, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And it, I think ties back into this whole notion of cloud design, just because you've put something in the cloud doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be available. You've got to be very careful about how you're setting up availability zones and uh, all that stuff to make sure that if one actual physical location goes down, you're still going to be up. Yeah. And in theory, they should have designed that data center so that if it went up in flames, none of the other three data centers went down. But that's what has happened. Although, you know, you could also argue that a fire of this magnitude, it was quite substantial. And if, as they say, the UPS systems went, when those batteries go up, they go up, right? But at the same time, that's a known risk. And there's reason to question, did OVH address the risk of the battery packs going up in the UPS system, or did they cut corners somewhere? Yeah, there's um, uh, the, the registers reporting that the uh, company chair, a fellow named Octav Klaba, suggested that um, the UPSs uh, had recently been serviced by the supplier, which seems like a little bit of blame shifting. <laughs> it does sound like it, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> they serviced them a couple of days beforehand. We think it might not be our fault. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Right. The fact that we didn't put in sufficient fire suppression or didn't think about the fire situation, please don't think about that sort of thing. Like, I mean, not that it is or it isn't. I'm just saying this doesn't feel like, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, we want to be sure to not uh, take pleasure in other people's misfortunes because these things are dangerous and also uh, impacted lots of folks. Lots of uh, services went out. So our sympathies to everybody. But uh, just a reminder that design matters. Yeah, it does. You should certainly not have everything in one physical area. One person was telling me that they actually had a DR facility inside of the site in the main <laughs> hall, SGB1, oh, uh, but their DR site, sorry, they had a, the, the site that went out was SGB2. So they had a backup or DR in one of the other halls. Uh, and that's obviously gone out as well. And now they're trying to activate their DR strategy, but it turns out that all the firewall rules are turned up so that it could only be limited to that site. So their security policy doesn't let them cope with a situation like this. So that was one story I heard. Um, another one was uh, somebody came up with a cracking joke. Have you ever heard of disaster recovery plan? Yes. And the person comes up and he says, yeah, oh, that's right. He said that the classic disaster recovery plan is step one, have a disaster. Step two, <laughs> recover from the disaster. <laughs> step three, plan for the disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fun fact, 
final kudos to OVH Cloud here. Uh, the CEO and founder of the company Octava Club has actually been on Twitter and been very transparent here. He's actually been communicating continuously with customers via the social medias and props to him for that. He hasn't uh, done what a lot of other CEOs do, which is they suddenly just disappear and stop talking for whatever reason. He's actually been very public and reaching out to customers as best he can, posting videos of a very tired-looking chap. Uh, so props <laughs> to them for not doing the, the typical American thing where the CEO disappears from the scene behind a phalanx of lawyers and uh, reaching out to customers on a personal level. Yeah, and we've got a link to their official uh, site to get more information about the updates if you want to go check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. Moving on, Apple has announced that the German city of Munich is going to be its European Silicon Design Center. Munich's already Apple's largest engineering presence in Europe, and now the company is adding hundreds of new employees and has invested in a brand new 30,000 square meter facility that's going to open in 2022. And the center is going to focus on custom silicon for wireless and 5G. Uh, lots of angles on this, I think, and I'm probably going to take most of the cynical ones. I don't <laughs> actually <laughs> step right up, sir. <laughs> First of all, Apple thinks long-term. One of the things that is to be admired about Apple is that they will have no problems in spending a lot of money on a long-term play. Um, and if that's the case here, that if you take that as your sort of starting point and then you start to consider, well, Apple's supply chain in China is under threat. It's also got to be combined with the fact that the EU government is starting to regard Apple as an antitrust target. Obviously, its app store could be perceived as a monopoly and not good for customers. And you know what? Apple doesn't actually pay any tax in the EU, just very small amounts. It uses a very aggressive tax avoidance scheme, which is legal, by the way. It is legal. (laughs) Yes. And has been challenged and proved to be legal in a very expensive court case against the EU government. But Apple doesn't pay any taxes. So um, like Facebook and Google before it, Apple realizes that actually maybe it needs to either start doing things so that the EU government doesn't ha- starts to suffer pain if they start to cause Apple some pain, if that makes sense. That's interesting. That's a threat I hadn't considered that the, yeah. aside from the technological uh, issues here around designing uh, wireless modems, this could also have political benefits for Apple. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because it's only a few hundred employees. Like well, I guess they've got about the- 1,500 total, and so they're adding a few more, and they also mentioned how they're going to be spending a billion dollars in investment over the next three years, which does, I, now that I <laughs> see it from this perspective, seem like a signal yeah. to the EU, like, hey, don't don't come after us too hard. Yeah, and, you know, maybe the research center will actually come up with something. Who knows? But, you know, Germany is, uh, it's not entirely well known, but Germany is actually the source of all the production equipment for making Essex. So things like air filtration and uh, uh, ultraviolet lithography and making uh, machines that make the silicon wafers and all that uh-huh. all originates from German manufacturing plants. And then it all gets shipped over to Taiwan where it's then assembled for TSMC. Uh-huh. So if you can start to build up a presence where you are actually doing a design capability inside of Germany, maybe you can actually complete the cycle and kickstart an industry there where somebody will put up the, the $10 billion to build an ASIC fabrication plant in Europe, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see if that's ever going to happen because it feels like the whole geopolitical battle around mm. silicon and microchips is getting hotter. And so uh, it'd be interesting to see if any fabrication comes home either to the European Union or the US. Yeah, I was reading something about um, extreme ultraviolet lithography. And apparently, you know, that's where you, you expose the wafers to the lithography so that you can actually then lay down the, the, the material onto the wafers. 
And the machinery that does just the lithography takes 20 ships and 30 planes to freight to the location. Wow. So now keep in mind that you've also got to do the same thing with the air filtration plants and, and you also need vast amounts of water uh, to do these things. So it is a really uh, unusual business. Right. It's very expensive. A lot of startup costs, um, which is why folks like TMSMC and uh, places in uh, Korea and China have the advantage because they've already sunk those costs and now they can just recoup. Well, there's a problem there. It's not an article we put in there this week, uh, but there is a water shortage. Taiwan is actually going through a drought at this particular point in time. I didn't bring it forward into the show because I thought, "Eh, you know, whatever. But the Taiwanese government released a press release this week saying that the semiconductor industry has enough water reserves to keep the tech industry going until late May when the monsoon rains are scheduled to arrive to alleviate the worst drought in decades. So just in case you were sceptical, so literally the government is assuring the world that it will continue to manufacture chips because it is by and large the most significant manufacturing source of chips for the globe. And if they don't have enough water, then yes, production lines will come to a halt if the monsoon rains don't arrive on time. So with OVH, we talked about, you know, sort of cloud design dependencies coming back to bite you. Now we're talking about physical dependencies coming back to bite you. It's all connected, folks. It's all connected. Yes. Just interesting that, you know, that that whole, you know, we talk a lot about supply chain things and the supply chain is very strange sometimes, but a drought in Taiwan could actually affect the availability of a Switch Essex or your Apple iPhones. <laughs> It's like a butterfly's wings in a, a tornado affecting. Yeah, it yes. reads like a William Gibson novel. Or it something. really does. It really does. <laughs> yeah. 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 We are living in the future. All right. Well, that wraps up our news. Uh, please stick around for our sponsor, Tech Bytes, conversation with Palo Alto Networks, talking about their Prisma SD-WAN that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we discuss Palo Alto's Prisma SD-WAN. And specifically, we're going to drill into key differentiators of the Prisma SD-WAN platform, including its use of machine learning to support day two ops, the unique CloudBlades offering, and its app-defined approach to path selection and policy enforcement. Our guest today is Rohan Grover. He is Senior Director of Product Management. Rohan, welcome to the podcast. So first things first, Palo Alto is rebranding CloudGenX SD-WAN to Prisma SD-WAN, yes? Yes. uh, Happy to be here, firstly. And this is a iconic rebranding moment for us. It's been 10 months since the acquisition. Uh, and what a 10 months it's been, right? Due to COVID, we have seen kind of 10 years of IT acceleration in these 10 months, work from anywhere, hybrid cloud adoption. And then we believe that at Palo Alto, our brand name Prisma captures these transitions best. And that's why we decided to rename CloudGenX to Prisma SD-WAN. This also aligns really well with our Prisma Access cloud security solution, which together delivers the most seamless integration uh, and complete SASE solution in the industry. I think it's also a recognition that uh, SD-WAN is part of a security portfolio or a larger portfolio because Prisma is not just SD-WAN. CloudGenix becomes Prisma SD-WAN, but SD-WAN is part of an overall bigger solution portfolio too. Absolutely. I think this is a recognition of the fact that networking and security are coming together as part of this whole SASE movement, and they are mm-hmm. all being delivered from the cloud. All right. So I mentioned at the top, we were going to talk about differentiators because there's a lot of SD-WAN options out there. So let's start with this idea of day two operations and machine learning. There's a lot of talk about machine learning, and sometimes it makes engineers' eyes roll when they hear it. So what does machine learning mean for network engineers who are running Prisma SD-WAN day-to-day? How's it going to help them? That's one of the key pillars of our solution, right? Simplifying operations and using our autonomous nature is one of the differentiators for us. So we're a session-based SD-WAN solution. Unlike legacy packet-based SD-WAN, we capture metadata from pretty much every application that's flowing to the appliance. We use that for traffic steering. And we also use that for interesting use cases like machine learning. 
One of the use cases that we introduced for machine learning in the last few months has been the ability for us to correlate kind of events and alarms that happen very regularly in a WAN network. Like you have all of these flashing lights going off in the knock, very hard for a network engineer to figure out what's going on. Uh, so because we have all of these data points, we can pinpoint the source of the issue, correlate all of these 20, 30, 100 alarms back to probably one or two causes, and then do auto remediation and try to fix those issues uh, and really solve the day end challenges or try to solve some of the day end challenges that network operators go through. So this is a troubleshooting use case then. You're saying because you can gather so much information, you can then analyze that information and say, if we're seeing a persistent problem on the WAN or a specific link, we've got some tools to help us dig into it, figure out what it actually is. Absolutely. And we can go back in time up to 90 days with the data that we collect. Uh, and we look at interesting things beyond just uh, you know layer three packet uh, instances. We look at you know, server response times. We look at things like TCP initiation failures to really figure out where the source of the problem is. Because I think in our world, time to innocence is really important. And we try to you know get to the minimum time to innocence to figure out, is it a WAN issue? Is it an application issue? Is it a wireless problem? I think it's really interesting here, Drew, and you know, it's one of these things that we should always be discussing is that when SD-WAN first came out, like we've been talking to Cloudgenics for years about SD-WAN, right? They've had all that pedigree and all that technology, and we've had that whole SD-WAN story. But it's really interesting that we've moved from the design part this is going to solve your WAN routing problem, maximize your band, you know that. And then it was the zero touch and the automated deployment and the cloud part, which is the deployment part, which is day one. And now that part is working probably so well that we're actually willing to look at day two, troubleshooting, operations, ads, moves and changes, telemetry data, taking the monitoring up to analytics and extracting telemetry information from it. It's a really interesting transition going on in the industry. Is that something that you agree with, Rohan? No, I absolutely do. I think day one is exactly that. It's one day. Uh, the real value of the solution is can you solve the operational challenges beyond that? And I, I think where we are heading in terms of our vision is an autonomous digital experience management capability. And we've already shipped this capability in our Prisma Access solution soon to do that in Prisma SD-WAN. And now we're talking about monitoring kind of the end user experience and providing segment-wise insights across the entire application delivery path. And, and that's going to be a game changer in my mind. I really do think so, because the key part about SD-WAN was that initial solving my path problem. But the real value that people are extracting from SD-WAN right now is the telemetry, visibility. You know, if you're running services over the public WAN and you feel to yourself, like if you've been using MPLS, that whole uncertainty goes away when I can see the performance of the application, see the performance of the system, right? Uh, absolutely. And I think this is something that's been missing in pretty much every other, what I call legacy SD-WAN solution. And we truly believe that these capabilities, along with some of our best of breed DevOps functions like APIs, are what is uh, a key differentiator for us. The machine learning that you're talking about here with a supervised model, that actually, the supervised model actually means that this is not uh, the sort of stuff that we've seen in the press where machine learning goes off and does things wrong. The supervised model means that you've got humans in there curating the model results to make sure that it's accurate. Yes. So this is what we call kind of the trust but verify model. Uh, so I think we will get to a world where extremely smart machine learning models will automatically remediate everything possible. But for now, I think there's people are taking baby steps here, right? So we want to solve one use case at a time. We want to figure out 
what works, what doesn't work, and how comfortable IT will be in doing this sort of self-driving network, if you may. We are well on the path to getting to that point. And that's important because that supervision, well, there's a couple of things about that. One is the retraining. There's a, an iteration loop around building the machine learning, having people in the loop makes your machine learning better. Models don't, they'll get open-ended, as you say, in the future. But that supervised model means that from a customer's perspective, it works today because there's a human in there making sure it's right. You're not experimenting on customers as guinea pigs so much. No, we're not. But the whole area of AI operations, which is what this terminology is being called now, is extremely fascinating. And I think the industry has barely scratched the surface of this. As AI ops matures and you know, net ops, sec ops, dev ops all kind of converge into AI ops, I think mm. you see a lot of interesting use cases around supervised and potentially unsupervised machine learning. You've got a capability called CloudBlades, and this came into Palo Alto through the CloudGenx acquisition. Can you tell us first what CloudBlades are, and then we'll talk about how they tie into SD-WAN? Sure. So one of the key tenants for Prisma SD-WAN is our cloud-delivered branch concept. And the way that we imagine that is we've built a capability called CloudBlades. It's an API abstraction layer, and we use that API abstraction layer to build integrations with any third-party or first-party technology. This basically means that we can provide cloud services without any dependency on our controller. We have decoupled this capability from our core controller code. So I can build a integration with somebody like AWS in a matter of weeks, and I can keep upgrading that integration uh, without having any dependency on my firmware, on the SD-WAN appliance, or on my controller. And this makes us extremely flexible and suited to this of new DevOps model that's emerging. What I'm gathering then is I can get sort of like applications or services, almost like network functions virtualization, but it's not software running on the controller. It's outside of the controller. So if AWS makes a change, you can adjust to that change, but me, the customer doesn't have to upgrade my controller software or upgrade my branch device software. Yeah, exactly. It's an independent piece of code, which can be upgraded completely separated from the controller. Because one of the bigger challenges customers have is when vendors come out with innovations, uh, they typically have to upgrade potentially hundreds of branches to take advantage of those innovations. With this CloudBlades API abstraction, that's not needed. We just upgrade this independent piece of code for that specific integration and you know, voila, customers can be up and running without causing any operational churn. Back when we first started talking to you about CloudBlades, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. But in today's network architecture models, it conceptually sounds to me it's like a container. You've used the word cloud blades to say, I've got a network operating system in my SD-WAN devices where I can put containers in. And the cloud blade is that. I think it's a little bit more than as just as simple as a container. This is quite a sophisticated idea around it. Is that correct? Absolutely. And you've described it exactly the way it is. It's, these are actual containers running in the cloud. But there's clearly a longer term vision to build out let's call it an app store type model to make sure that independent third-party publishers can put out their own cloud blades that can provide additional value-added services to our customers. So can you give me an example of a kind of application or service that I could tie into with cloud blades? So we talked about AWS, uh, Transit Gateway. That's a very good example of a service. The other example that we love to talk about is ServiceNow. So having a ServiceNow cloud blade, which exists today, gives customers the ability to essentially create tickets based on these machine learning uh, you know, alarms and correlation and have that ticket sent directly to ServiceNow. Right? So that really simplifies the whole loop of IT and how issues can get tracked and fixed easily. 
Okay, so using the Cloud Blades, I can kick off tickets or have tickets automatically instantiated to feed into my uh, remediation pipeline, essentially. Exactly. Okay, that's interesting. And what can you do with AWS? You mentioned transit gateways. Yeah, so AWS introduced a new concept called Transit Gateway Connect. It's a new way uh, to connect to workloads in the cloud from your branch. It essentially takes out some other dependency that was there previously around the throughput. Uh, and what we've done is we've created this cloud blade that can automatically set up those uh, tunnels to AWS, uh, set up the kind of transit gateway VPC, and then do all of the control plane BGP type configurations automatically. All of this stuff that would normally take a network ops person or a cloud ops person hours to do is done in a matter of minutes. And it also abstracts away the complexity of somebody knowing the specific constructs of AWS versus Azure versus GCP, all of which have similar models. Uh, and I think this really makes IT's life simple. And tomorrow, if AWS changes something about this construct, we can hide those changes and really, at the end of the day, provide the outcome that the customer is looking for, which is connect the branch to the workloads in the public cloud. And this is this uh, ongoing trend that we're seeing that customers want to be able to use their SD-WAN to connect to services that are hosted in AWS or whichever of the public cloud providers you want. But they also want to be able to connect their SD-WAN to the existing data center in a flexible and dynamic way. You don't want to have to loop it back to the data center and then send it up to the cloud, but you also want to use the part of the AWS connectivity that suits you. It's not always internet. Sometimes it's the direct connection. Sometimes it's transit gateways. Is that right? Yeah, and this is the whole hybrid cloud approach. We want to make sure that the cloud is treated from an SD-WAN perspective exactly the same way as you would treat a data center, uh, which means I should be able to go from my branch to my public cloud without having to backhaul through my DC. Uh, hmm. Saves a lot of latency, gets you direct access to your workloads in the cloud, uh, and in general, keeps the level of consistency between branch, data center, and public cloud. So one other thing we mentioned at the introduction is that um, you're pulling application data in to inform your path selection policy, that kind of thing. And I think every SD-WAN vendor does something like that. So how is Prisma SD-WAN differentiating here? You say you're getting more information out of your application identification? I think it goes well beyond that. Right? When we decided to build this, we took a top-down approach. We look at metrics that pretty much any other SD-WAN vendor does not. Traditional SD-WAN vendors look at loss, latency, jitter at a packet level. We really look at the whole approach from what does an application need. So our metrics consists of things like TCP initiations, uh, server response times, MOS scores for uh, video traffic. We take all of these elements that are typically layer seven elements, and then we come up with a traffic steering decision based on these application metrics combined with the traditional loss latency jitter. And this is not a feature. This is a fundamental building block of the architecture. Uh, you can't just add this capability on a solution that was built to do packet routing. So we're super proud of this capability and we are seeing this as a huge differentiator that's going to be hard for anybody to do in the near future. So what benefit does it get me as a customer, this differentiation at the application level? The biggest benefit is that at the end of the day, it's not about the lost latency jitter. What the end customer cares about, what the network ID team cares about is, is the experience for the user the best it can be? And because we are looking at application metrics, including you know MOS scores, like we talked about, codecs, you're actually giving the right level of user experience and not basing that just on networking metrics. Networking metrics have never been a good approximation of the application experience. We've just used that 
as a proxy because we couldn't do anything else in the past. Now hmm. that we have all of this layer seven metadata, and since we use that to take traffic steering decisions, you're actually making a big difference in the end user experience. Okay, so end user experience. And then again, at the same time, you've also got additional data to feed your machine learning models, which should improve path selection and troubleshooting and so on. It becomes kind of a virtuous circle. Absolutely. We do so many things with that data. And this is all a kind of a direct benefit of the way that we chose to build out the architecture. Well, that does bring us to the end of our time for this Tech Bytes. Rohan, thanks for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Rohan, if folks want to find out more, where would you send them? Uh, to learn about the true value of our next-gen SD-WAN solution, we have a Forrester Total Economic Impact Spotlight, and you can find that at go.paloaltonetworks.com slash PP. And that, of course, stands for Packet Pushers. So that's where you find more. All right, so that's go.paloaltonetworks.com slash PP. We'll also have that link on our website with the description that accompanies this podcast, along with other links. Thanks again, Rohan, for joining us, and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Last but definitely not least, thanks to you for listening. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts, along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.